This is The Guardian. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. The United Kingdom will soon have yet another Prime Minister. With Liz Truss resigning late last week after just 45 days in office, the shortest term on record. Tonight, the Conservative Party will decide on a new leader. This episode from our audio team in London will take you inside this extraordinary series of events and analyse what this leadership contest means for the future of the United Kingdom and Labor's chance at winning the next election. Here's political correspondent Peter Walker speaking to Today in Focus host Michael Safi. Uh, it's a very grey and fairly wet Thursday morning and I'm stood right next to one of uh, Parliament's main gates um, I've just got off my bike. I'm about to push my bike through after showing my pass to the uh, police on the gate. And once I'm at my desk, I'm going to sit down for what promises to be another extraordinary day in UK politics. Peter Walker is a political correspondent with The Guardian. And on Thursday morning, he was taking us through what it's like right now, covering British politics after Wednesday's chaos. On Wednesday, we started off with the Prime Minister's questions, which was seen as make or break for this trust. Mr Speaker, I have been very clear that I am... Mr Speaker, that I am sorry. We then had the suspension of one of her key aides. And then we had possibly the most extraordinary thing, which was Swella Braverman, the Home Secretary, who'd been in the job for precisely 43 days, stepped down. The incident involved Suella Braverman sharing secure information that she shouldn't do on a private phone. And as the day went on, the chaos got more and more. Late in the afternoon, we had a debate on whether to frack in uh, England, which was a Labour one. And um, the government whips initially said it was what they call a confidence motion, meaning any Tory MP who voted against it would lose the whip. Could he please confirm whether that is the case or not? I thank the Honourable Lady uh, for that question, and that is a, par- a matter for party managers, and I'm not a party manager. But then they announced to the Chamber it was no longer a confidence motion, and then there were these absurd scenes in which some wavering Conservative MPs were allegedly almost physically dragged into the correct voting lobby, whether by ministers or whips, it's not quite clear. I think it's a shambles and a disgrace. I think it is utterly appalling. Uh, and then at about 1.15 in the morning, we got a message saying that it was a confidence motion after all, and the minister who said it wasn't a confidence motion got it wrong. Uh, and so there's a prospect of a dozen or so Conservative MPs facing disciplinary action, including potentially losing the whip. And this is all in the second month of Liv Truss being in power. And we genuinely don't know how much longer she's going to be here. I mean, could today be the final day? Who knows? Basically, no one knows. But I'm about to go in, log on to my computer and see where we are. So that was Thursday morning. We heard from him again around noon with an update. We've just found out that Sir Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee, which represents backbench MPs and is enormously powerful, has been seen going into number 10. Um, As far as we know, it's not a routine meeting, so presumably he's meeting Liz Truss to tell her something. It might not be that significant in the grand scheme of things. It might be incredibly significant. She could be gone in days, she could be gone in weeks. It might even be months. She was gone by 1.30 in a press conference outside 10 Downing Street after the briefest rain in British history. 
Liz Truss resigned as Prime Minister of the UK. Given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. She promised an election within the Conservative Party to replace her within a week. The end of one chaotic chapter, and maybe the start of another. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how did it all go so badly wrong for Liz Truss? Sonia Soda, you're a political commentator for The Guardian and Observer, and we've just seen the Prime Minister come out of Downing Street and announce her resignation. First of all, what's your reaction? Well, it was looking after what happened last night in Parliament that her resignation was going to come at some point. But I don't think many of us expected to happen quite as quickly as it did. What we understand from the sequencing of it is that the chair of the 1922 committee, after that disastrous vote over fracking in Parliament, that she managed to get through Parliament, but there was huge dissent in in the voting lobbies and MPs arguing with each other, etc. After that, we think what happened is that, you know, more MPs were calling for her publicly to go. There would have been a lot more private letters that went into the chairman of the 1922 committee. And he went to see her. And essentially what's happened is that they agreed that she would go and timed the timetable for electing a new Conservative leader and therefore Prime Minister. So I'm quite surprised at just how quickly it happened. We live in a parliamentary system. When the Prime Minister, her authority has become completely shot amongst her parliamentary party, you know, you sort of know the end is in sight. But I didn't think it was going to happen quite so fast. And you've given us a glimpse at what happened leading up to 1.30 when Liz Truss went out in front of Number 10 Downing Street to formally resign. But how did she actually explain why she was making that shock move in that brief speech that she made? Well, it was a very brief speech, which I think just sort of goes to show um, how defeated she is and what what a moment this must be for her. But essentially what she said was that she was selected by Tory members to to do something to sort of, um, you know, put the country on the back to back on the path to economic growth, to cut taxes and that it had become abundantly clear that she wasn't going to be able to fulfil that mandate. So that's why she was stepping aside. So it was an incredibly brief, terse statement, I think. To understand how we got to this point, where it all went wrong for Liz Truss, what's the starting point that you use? Where does this whole sorry story begin? Well, I think it really begins with the mini-budget Now we need to focus on growth, not just how we tax and spend. We won't apologise for managing the economy in a way that increases prosperity and living standards. Our entire focus is on making Britain more globally competitive, not losing out to our competitors abroad. 
And, you know, we saw over the summer when she was competing in the Conservative leadership election, she made all these pledges for things she was going to do. Like she said she was going to cut taxes. But I think a lot of people thought, you know, that's something that she's saying because she wants to win round Conservative members. But she's probably not going to try and do that stuff as soon as she gets into Downing Street because of the massive economic crisis facing the country and um, the huge energy price shock that we're facing. And so I think people were really quite taken aback, including in her own party, when at the mini budget, Kwasi Kwarteng came out and announced a very, very expensive energy support package. But not only that, a huge programme of unfunded tax cuts costing tens of billions of pounds a year. That's what led the markets to crash, the pounds to plunge. And that's really, that's why we, we've ended up where we are. I think actually if she'd gone out and just done the energy support package and left it at that, she would definitely still be prime minister today. So I think that mini budget was really the beginning of the end and what a sort of short truncated story it's been for her as prime minister. But I I think that's what really set the the wheels turning. Do you think the people that delivered her the leadership believed her when she said she was going to do all these things like cutting taxes, all these things that we knew would have terrible effects in the markets? Like, do you think it came as a surprise to people that she really believes this stuff? She really was that ideological? I don't think there's ever been any sort of um, suggestion that she's not a very ideological um, conservative. You know, she's got a history of writing about this stuff. But I think what really took people by surprise is the extent to which she was so driven by ideology um, and so inflexible that even given the current economic crisis that the country's in, I mean, you literally couldn't find a single economist apart from, you know, maybe one or two of her very close economic advisors who thought this was a good idea. And quite frankly, even some of the economists who'd been advising her, um, like Jared Lyons, even they said they absolutely would not have come out and done this at this time. So, So I guess the sort of short way of answering that question is that, You know, I think everyone thought she was ideological, but they've been taken by surprise at just how ideological she was to the point of literally her and Kwasi Kwarteng ignored what everyone would have been telling her, saying, you know, the markets are going to react like this. I think they both thought, actually, somehow we've got this right and the whole world, including the whole economics establishment, has got this wrong. So I think it's that level of ideological drive that that surprised some people. What do you think finally did it, finally convinced her that her time was up? I think it will just be the scenes in Parliament last night when we saw, I mean, MPs openly rebelling, going out on the radio. We saw that extraordinary interview uh, with the backbench MP Charles Walker, where he sort of had his head in his hands and was kind of decrying the state of the Conservative Party and her premiership. I think that will have hit home. But also in the days in, in the run up to what happened on Wednesday evening. So just the humiliation of having to sack one of your closest friends as Chancellor because he's basically done what you've agreed together and then put into place an alternative Jeremy Hunt, who basically reverses everything that you wanted to do and is so clearly the de facto prime minister. I mean, all the power sat with him in that relationship. So I think, you know, the the, the whole thing about a parliamentary system is that a prime minister's power absolutely comes from being able to command the support of a majority of MPs in parliament. And I just think the last few days have made very, very clear that 
that's not true for Liz Truss anymore and her authority is completely shot and she doesn't have the confidence of her parliamentary party. She's frittered it away, um, you know, in a five, five week, six week period. And, and to be honest, she wasn't even the MP's choice to start off with. Um, she was a membership's choice. So I, I think that's what will have convinced her that w- what's the point in staying if you literally can't get anything done? Okay, so this is the end of the Liz Truss era, brief as it was. Tell me about the process to replace her. How will that play out over the next week? Sir Graham Brady, who's a chairman of the 1922 committee, he agreed with Liz Truss that there would be a leadership election. Most people were assuming that because it's only a week, it would be a decision taken solely by MPs. But Sir Graham Brady has now been going out on the airwaves saying it's going to go to members. There's huge questions A, how is that going to work on a practical level? How do you poll 160, 170,000 members over a one-week period? But secondly, I think it opens up huge questions about the legitimacy of this process. I'm somebody who thinks that in a parliamentary system, there's a real problem in going to party memberships on a one-member, one-vote basis to select a party leader, particularly when that party's in government and essentially you've got a tiny unrepresentative sliver of the electorate selecting the country's next prime minister. You know, ideally you do that through a general election. If you're not going to do that, you would at least have MPs who represent more voters across the country than party members ever could selecting their next leader and then you know you've got a leader and a prime minister who's got the confidence of MPs in parliament to me it seems extraordinary that the conservative party would go out to its membership in just a week again without putting it to a general election I think that opens up an even bigger democratic deficit whoever it is Sonia what will this new prime minister inherit I mean what kind of challenges will they have to immediately get on top of Well, the first is obviously the economy, trying to steady the markets. And that is a huge task. And I don't think it can be exaggerated, really, the damage that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng have done. There is no doubt that even though most of what they've announced, they've rode back on, they have left the British economy in a worse place structurally. So that will absolutely be at the top of the new prime minister's in-tray. There are also all the huge long-term issues, the war in Ukraine, what's going to happen to the energy price guarantee what on earth are we going to do about growth in this country especially given the fact that Brexit we've had a new report out today has been so damaging for exports how are we going to make the books add up and you know Jeremy Hunt has been hinting at in recent day about the need for tough spending cuts I mean there is nothing to be cut from the state at the moment hospitals schools, financial support for low-paid parents. These are things that absolutely need to be boosted given what's going on in the wider economy. It's a very, very grim entry, I have to say. One thing I'm wondering here is what kind of mandate the next Prime Minister, whoever they are, will actually have. Like Boris Johnson won the last election with a particular set of policies. Liz Truss tried to push a far more radical agenda. Will whoever takes over feel able to push their own vision or they feel like they only really have democratic cover to return to the things that Boris Johnson ran on three years ago. 
I think that his was always a bit of a have your cake and eat it sort of offer, which was vote for me, I'll do all this levelling up and stuff and there won't be any economic pain. And that's very clearly not the situation that we're in now. But there will be a lot of pressure because, you know, this new prime minister, whoever they are, has no democratic mandate. It was Boris Johnson who won a large majority and circumstances have completely changed. And we already know, we're already getting the hints from Jeremy Hunt of what is in store in the coming months. And there is no democratic mandate for that whatsoever. The issue is there's no way for Labour to force a general election unless enough Conservative MPs decide that they've had enough. We need a majority of MPs to vote against the government and that will involve enough Conservative MPs crossing the floor to vote with the opposition parties. Conservative MPs, I think they would have to think that things are so, so desperate to go to a general election. They're very worried about losing their seats. So they will be wanting to give a new prime minister the chance to see if there can be a bit of a turnaround in their electoral fortunes. We're in this very weird place again where there's no democratic mandate, but because a new prime minister is likely to command the support of a majority of MPs in parliament, there's no way of triggering a general election. And in a sense, the worse the polls get, the more MPs fear going to an election, the more likely we are to have this lot sticking around until 2024. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think that's still the most likely time that we'll see a general election unless something else happens. I think it's extremely unlikely. But if there were, say, to be a resolution of the conflict in Ukraine and that has a knock-on impact on energy prices and that has a knock-on impact on the economy, then in perhaps those circumstances, a Conservative Prime Minister might decide to go early in a general election. But I think it's very, very unlikely. Coming up, what's driving these weeks and these years of chaos in British politics? Hey, Laura murphy here. If you're enjoying Full Story, I think you'll really like another podcast we make here at Guardian Australia called Book It In. On Book It In, some of Australia's favourite authors open up about the ideas behind their books in personal and thought-provoking conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. This season includes 2022 Miles Franklin winner Jennifer Down and Stella Prize winner Evelyn Araluen. You know, we are colonised through literature and our resistance to that, I think, has a capacity to be literary. We are not in a post-colonial society in Australia. The invaders are still here. They've never left. Subscribe to Book It In now on your favourite podcast player where you can hear the first episode of this new season out next week on Thursday, 3rd of November. Sonia, whenever the election happens, Labor are clearly in the box seat. What do they need to do now to capitalise on this situation? If Labour wins the next election, they are going to be inheriting an almighty mess. It's not going to be like Labour winning the general election in 1997 when everyone was sick of the Conservatives or most voters were sick of the Conservatives, but the economy was on the up and there was a very optimistic mood in the country. It'll be like Labour winning the general election in 1964, 1974, in times of economic strife. And so in order to make a change to the country, it's not something you can do in five years when you inherit an economy like that. You're going to need at least two terms. So it's very, very 
very important that Labour focuses on winning the maximum size majority that it can. And I have to say, I think, you know, Keir Starmer and the Labour Party have got some way to go still in communicating what they stand for, what Britain would be like under a Labour government, what their positive vision is, how people's lives would feel different. They've got some way to go in that. And what makes it even more difficult is when you're inheriting a very poor economy it's quite hard to make the sort of pledges you know the really sort of far-sighted big picture ambitious pledges I'm thinking things like free universal childcare, you know free older care for all older adults that need it those sorts of offers are, are much more difficult to sort of credibly make at a time when the economy is 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 feeling very grim. Given that the economy is feeling so grim things are so bad out there right now in the country what will be the long-lasting effects of this kind of, of drift in governance? Like, can the UK recover from this period? It's so hard to think about the really long-term effects, you know, when, when such extraordinary events are happening before you that people wouldn't have predicted two weeks ago, you know. We've had months and months of crisis and questions hanging over the integrity and conduct of Boris Johnson's government. These things do really long-term damage to public trust in political institutions. They do long-term damage to Britain's reputation around the world. And, you know, I think it's something that for me really started the seeds of it were planted um, with Brexit, with the referendum campaign, with a very populist campaign that um, essentially misled voters about what they'd be getting. That's when the basic honour code around politics started to break down. And I think, you know, we've just seen that kind of build ahead of steam in recent uh, weeks and months. But, you know, of course, nothing's permanent. And of course, the UK can come back from it, although it will take quite some time. And I think we'll look back on this period um, you know, it's extraordinary period of political instability and crisis in the same way as we sort of look back on the 1970s when it comes to the UK. And Sonia, you've drawn the line back through the last chaotic few weeks to 2016, to Brexit. How do you think Brexit planted the seeds for what we've seen over the past few days? There's always been a flank, a very Eurosceptic flank of the Conservative Party that's been very, very ideologically driven. And it's not just about the EU. It is this ideal of a low tax, you know, low regulation state. It's a sort of economic fantasy that doesn't really exist in the world. I mean, I think what we've seen, what you can trace over the last, you know, six, seven years is the rise of that wing of the party. And, um, you know, they've really had to confront the fact that they don't have an agenda for the country beyond this sort of fantasy ideology. And there's a lot of people like Boris Johnson who probably wouldn't have signed up to that ideology pre-2016 but hitched themselves to it because they just nakedly saw it as a way of getting power and um, they thought it would, would benefit their own personal ambition. That's what's happened. And I think... Brexit and the the beginnings of Brexit and the impact that that's had on the Conservative Party, to be honest, it's imploded a lot more quickly than I thought it would. But I always thought it was going to implode because I never thought that voters were going to get what was promised as a result of Brexit. And I always thought that there was going to be a reckoning for the Conservative Party one day on that. So, Sonia, if this is the moment that that economic fantasy has imploded, will it live on in some kind of zombie form? Or is this now the end of that era, a time for the UK's next prime minister to grapple with the reality, the reality of Britain's place in the world and what it can and can't do? 
I absolutely think it will live on because I think that they are still a flank within the Conservative Party that has some power. I also think there's a lot of support for it. For example, in the media, I think some of our newspapers like The Telegraph and The Daily Mail remain very, very supportive of these economic concepts and, you know, this this ideology. So I think it's definitely still going to be there. But the reality that the new prime minister will face... Uh, you know, I think I think it's just really hard to sort of get our heads around how grim the next few months are going to be in terms of the economics and in terms of the impact that's going to have real impacts on public services, on benefits, etc. But I, I think it will always live on because, you know, usually when you've got people who are very wedded to ideology, if they get a chance to run a government and it all implodes, you know, people have a tendency to look back and say, well, that's just because the people who are in power didn't do it properly if you did it my way. So I suspect in the years to come, we will see quite a few people on that wing of, um, you know, the Conservative party sort of trying to make those claims. And so the party is basically unable to govern properly. They look exhausted. They're clearly divided. At what point does this start to look like an existential problem for the Conservatives? I think it's existential in the sense that I think the chances of them winning the next election, I mean, never say never in politics and things can change quickly, but I think they are vanishingly small now. But I I don't think it's existential yet. It's not unheard of under our electoral system, first past the post, for a party to wither and die altogether. Um, but, you know, people were talking about it in relation to Labour in you know, 2015, 2016. Is, you know, is this, is this going to happen to Labour? Is the new sort of Brexit realignment, like, is, is Labour done for? The thing is, though, is that, you know, under first past the post, there are very, very strong incentives for parties not to fracture and split. So I don't think we're anywhere near that point for the Conservatives yet. I think it's existential in the sense that they're looking at probably a very long spell in opposition. Um, But I doubt it's going to be the end of the Conservatives. Mm, Well, it's certainly existential for Liz Truss's political career. What do you think she does now? Oh, gosh. I mean, who knows? What an embarrassing record. Uh, Shortest lived prime minister and, you know, to sort of leave office in such a humiliating way to have messed things up so badly. Um, That said, I'm sure like every other prime minister before her, she will be able to make a lot of money on the speaking circuit. I'm sure she'll write a book about it at some point and make a a lot of money out of that. A very short book, you imagine. A pamphlet, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes. Or maybe like, you know, maybe a chapter, a a day of her premiership or something like that. But um, uh, yeah, I wouldn't feel too sorry for her because I'm sure there were some very lucrative things in the pipeline for her coming up. It's as surprising as some of us might, might find that. Finally, Sonia, if you were to try to measure how long the Conservative Party will stay in government, in terms of, say, the shelf life of a vegetable, (laughs) would you be leaning towards like a winter squash or a pumpkin or more like a rocket lettuce in a bag? Unfortunately, my bet would be on the sort of winter squash pumpkin side of things, something that can last. I think think we're probably still looking um, at a year or two until a general election. So, um, yeah, I, I think quite a sad dishevelled pumpkin uh, one that's a bit bitter not going to taste very good to eat um, but probably more on that side than yeah like a a leaf of lettuce that's um, you know that's going to go off in a couple of days. Sonia thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That 
That was Today in Focus host Michael Safi speaking to Guardian commentator Sonia Soda. You can read more of our live coverage and reporting on The Next Leader of the UK at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles and Joe Glanville. Sound design was by Rudy Zagardlo. The executive producer of Today in Focus is Phil Maynard. Additional production on this episode by Karishma Lusria and Miles Martignoni. Okay, catch you next time.